0: We cannot keep this in, so just be very careful with editing.
1: Has anything slipped by that we didn't want in?
0: That is true. Okay, we're ready. Also, you edit this. I know. know (laughs) All right. All right, here we go, guys. Connor, we're ready. See if you remember how to do this after being off for the last three three months.
1: Your perception of time is a little Ah. skewed, Bill. Yes. All right, let's go. Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor Malley, and my co-hosts. Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. And in this episode, we have the full band back together. Bill later on shared that this was pretty much his favorite episode of all time, mainly because it's about one of his favorite topics. And it's not burgers or pizza. Nope, it's music and live music events. Bill even had this to say to our guest on the show. Chris, we appreciate it. The music talk was awesome. Just listening to you talk about music, the passion you have behind it is just incredible. Our guest today was Chris McClintock, who's the director of communications at U.S. Squash. And in this episode, we share our top three live music experiences and then dig into squash photography, which is one of the roles that Chris does at U.S. Squash. If you want to jump to the squash part of this, skip to the one hour mark and you will be good. Just for some context, this was recorded back in December, 2021. So some references are slightly dated. Quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, who actually has some very interesting developments going on. They are strengthening their partnerships within the racket sports world. They are partnering up with Padel Plus to bring Padel courts into the United States and the UK. And just like their LED lights, these are premium quality courts at great prices. What's also unique about Padel Plus is their canopy roof structure that has all of the great qualities of getting an outdoor playing experience, but you have the dependability, you can play your match regardless of rain or snow. So if you know of anyone interested in lights or padel courts, please go ahead and put us in touch. Reach out to us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of the breakdown with my co-hosts Bill Buckingham and Paul Johnson PJ. PJ, how are you doing? Before Bill goes on his monologue, I just want to make sure <laughs> you get the opportunity to speak first.
2: Thank you, connor Very kind of you. It's lovely to see you chaps again. It's been a while. Um spent some time back in the UK, had some uh, visa paperwork that I needed to get stamped into the passport and also tied it in with commentating at the Canary Wharf Classic. So uh, I had about six weeks back in the UK and spent a lot of quality time, family and friends, and finally back on US soil, uh, nicely rested and eager to get underway with this uh, this next new podcast.
1: Me too. And Bill, um, thanks for bringing the band back together, so to speak, and uh, pretty apropos for this, uh, this episode. So you're the brainchild behind this one. Tell us a little bit about how you've been doing and what we're going to do on the show today.
0: I've been doing great. I, I've missed all of you guys, except for PJ, who who happens to be on every squash podcast there possibly is. I don't want to use the W word or the S word. So which I don't know which is more appropriate. Um, is, is PJ a podcast slot or is he a podcast whore? <laughs> I don't know if either one is appropriate for this airways. But PJ, honestly, we try to drag yeah. you onto these episodes and you're like, no, I'm busy. I'm busy every podcast I he's listen a man to in demand
1: on, he's a man in demand i
0: mean well which would be fine if he would go on our podcast when we want him to but it's always like no i can't i'm traveling i'm traveling but then i turn on like the you know barry gibson and he's on i turn on seven bounce chronicles whatever that's called and he's on i mean it's just it's non-stop pj all pj all the time so my way of saying welcome pj back to your show that you actually are a part of and that work for we we appreciate you <laughs> Making the time well, for this. It's awesome. nice.
2: You finally, when you bring up topics of actual interest to me, Bill, then I will happily come in and join the podcast.
0: So what we decided to do to get this back together is I've always wanted to have my colleague, Chris McClintick, who is the director of communications at U.S. Squash on Chris's squash knowledge uh, and no offense to PJ or Joey Barrington or Jamie Maddox or, or anyone else who, who fancies themselves as a squash aficionado and, and has a well of knowledge of squash. Chris McClintock knows more about the PSA tour. I hasten to say than anyone else in this country. Uh, He could name. (laughs)
1: That is uh, a pretty bold statement. That is a bold statement.
0: I'm telling you, he does. He brings up these names of these players that are like, like we'll talk about like someone will drop out of a draw and all of a sudden, and I don't want to throw Nada Abbas's name in because we threw shade at her last time and she actually just ended up winning a tournament. So (laughs) shout out Nada for for, uh, riding the uh, TBD uh, wave of good luck but no like it'll be like random name joanna johnson will step in because <laughs> somebody dropped out of a draw and connell uh chris will say oh yeah she played number seven at cornell in 1996 uh, yeah she's been on the psa tour for like three years now she's remember she won that satellite event satellite event in hamburg <laughs> and swear to god that chris that is 100 percent true so it's, i'm throwing you kudos don't shake your head so but beyond that his knowledge of squash is—I can't think of the word—but uh, is only topped by his knowledge of music. Chris knows more about music than anyone I know, and goes to more concerts and more live music shows. I again don't want to say it—I think more than anyone else in America and in the world who does not work for the in the music industry. There may be some guy who has to go to concerts all the time and is forced to. Chris, Chris, just as just as, before we jump into this, how many concerts have you gone to in the last two weeks? Probably five or six. Wow, wow. <laughs> <go>. oh, <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I, I, I welcome would... to the show, Chris. Welcome that's to the show. Lo- that's
1: probably the one of the most hyped up intro Bill has yeah. ever done. And Bill has also been an MC for, you know, professional sporting events. Like that is the the biggest intro for us yeah. yes ever. My my ego can't take this. I, I'm Yes, just completely yeah. the, the I, hardest
3: part
0: also, about this was getting Chris to do this at ten o'clock in the morning. By the way, he was like, oh, can, we, <laughs> "Can we do 11? Kind of. Like, so Chris, Chris stayed over my this house. This is only going to
1: go downhill for you, Chris. I mean, <laughs> this well, is a lot to live up
0: to. We went to a show last week. He went. He uh he stayed over my house. We got home like at midnight. I went, got up on Sunday morning and went and played squash. Got back. Uh, squash like 10 o'clock in the morning. Got back at like noon and Chris was just getting out of bed to be
3: fair that's because you generously dd'd that night and yes you know we were we had
0: vastly different circumstances true true you imbibed a bit more than myself but yeah either way either way he it's not like he's 21 he is like you are in your 30s at this point Chris now I'll be 32 in May there you go so getting up at noon no longer a thing for your age so <laughs> but moving on Here Um, I am. Here I am. (laughs) Exactly. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into this and we're going to start. Let's start with PJ, actually. We always start with me and then, you know, nobody listens after that. So we're going to start with PJ. We're going to go through our most memorable musical experiences. And if you guys are like me, a lot of these experiences that I've had aren't memorable anymore because of what I did during those experiences. (laughs) So I'm going to use the ones that I actually remember. And uh, we'll go around the room, be it a concert you want to, be it music you've played, be it music you've sung, be it anything. But your top musical experiences and why. And uh, we'll kind of get into it. And uh, then we're going to ask Chris some questions after he goes through his some of the random uh, concerts he's been to. <laughs> so, PJ, kick yeah, us off I mean, I'll, I'll uh, with, with your musical uh, I mean, experiences. Crikey.
2: five or six uh, concerts in the last two weeks. I've been to two in my entire life. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel pretty kind of inferior in that department. And two, two of my, my top three music events uh, do involve concerts, actually. The first ever concert that I went to was back in 1919. It was a band called Soul to Soul. I don't know if you guys ever know of uh, like a British band that was put together uh, by this kind of sound system, a, a collection of DJs and sound engineers that had a... A very big African following back in that particular era, and uh, it was at a place called Wembley Arena. A friend of mine, Darren Webb, and I got to, got these tickets. We went went along for the night, and we ended up chatting with one of the security guards who was kind of protecting the the specific areas. Anyway, he turned around and asked if my friend and I would like to attend a private party after the event. I'm not like 18 years of age at this stage, and We've gone into this event, we're just sort of standing around having a drink and, and, a, and a chat, the pair of us. And all of a sudden, the actual band themselves came in to the after party, led by a guy called Jazzy B and a lady called Karen Wheeler, uh, just in complete and utter awe of these musicians. And he was sort of, he was working the room, and I, just, <laughs> I was completely starstruck. And as he came over to our sort of area, I, I literally, I think I just put my hand out, and just said, you know, really enjoyed the show. My favorite song is Keep On Moving. And that, that was it. I mean, it was like just complete and utter um, awe uh, from that particular band. Second music event was actually DJed at a party. for so Some of you have actually told this uh, story on a podcast. So Coroner's definitely heard the story. But uh, two friends of mine back in the late 80s and through the 90s used to host these private um, parties. They would hire out venues, kind of halls or stadiums and centres uh, and, and he was a, a DJ himself. And he's invited me along to this particular event. It was about 800 people, I think it was, on this particular night. And we had a similar taste in music. I used to collect a lot of vinyl when, during my playing days. I've got, probably got a collection now about uh, between 1,000 thousand and fifteen hundred 1,500 uh, sort of vinyl records. Uh, and he asked me to take a couple of my music boxes along because he was going to borrow some of my records. And about 40 minutes into the night, He's called me over and just said, you know, he was going to nip off and take a break. Would I mind covering the decks while he was uh, grabbing a drink and a a quick toilet break? And ended up playing for about an hour and a half on the decks in front of 800 people. Now, the, the buzz... And the exhilaration that I got from that just gave you some kind of insight as to what some of these top DJs in the world, like your Tiestos and, you know, those kind of guys must go through because the crowd, it was quite an intimate kind of setting in uh, in this private club. So the, the buzz that I so, got from that was absolutely. So
0: so tell me about DJing. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Like, you just put, you put you put a, do the record on, yeah, you put you, the needle could, down, and it you, plays. Do do you shout out stuff? Do you yell no, stuff no, no, during it? No, like,
2: no, no. I mean, bear in mind this was. I've only done it about three or four times. So I was, and I'm always a bit more kind of laid back and a bit more quiet, so to speak, on on the decks. You you do have certain concerts where they'll have an MC who'll be calling out stuff over the top of the tracks. But basically, you've got you'll have two record players side by side and in between the the two decks you'll have like a mixing deck so your object is to try to get the beats of the style of music that you're playing working in harmony so they're going at the same speed the same amount of beats per minute and then you blend at the right time in the music you blend it across to to move from one track to the next so as you get to the end as you're coming to the end of one particular song You'll then just start the intro of the, the second track that you want to follow, and then you'll blend it in and move it across.
0: So, what makes someone great at it? Like you talk, you talk about like these Dr. Dre's and like anybody, That's like these really people get hired to. Like, what makes someone better than the other? It sounds, I mean, not I'm not poo pooing the skill involved, and maybe they'll be, they'll be able to listen to music and understand the beat and stuff. But like, it's they pay people thousands and thousands of dollars to come and DJ a party.
1: Um, like, why why but, would like they be better than you? I think there's an element I'll jump in quickly it's like why is it one guitarist better than the other right a lot of it is just how they uh, Yeah but they're playing their own music they're playing their own instrument this is records being played that are already like But not, there's a, like, there's a skill to both yeah, right like, like one you kind of understand more versus the other one well so, maybe I'll have PJ who does this for I think instrument. a
2: lot of it will be down to certain DJs will have certain sounds that that, that the that they're known for and that then builds their following. So a lot of these top DJs, it will be more to do with the amount of followers that they got. And I know some very high profile DJs, that in my opinion, are really bad DJs as far as what they the quality of their mixing won't always be tight, you know, it won't be tight, it will be a bit loose. And the records that they'll play may be a little bit more of uh, we call it kind of cheesy or a bit more common or you know, the style of music <clears throat> wouldn't be particularly my style but just because of the followings that they've got with certain age groups it will just make them so much more popular and then that's and then all of a sudden these record labels or these uh, producers will uh, um, ask these djs to play their type of music knowing that it will then go out to their fan base and then they'll ultimately end up selling more records so i, I understand what kind of sound into an element there's an element of, of truth in that but these higher profile top quality djs that are charging phenomenal amounts of money aren't always the best djs that are out there i've seen some guys do some unbelievable stuff on the decks. some guys with three turntables and they can flip back and forth between the three tracks that are playing and i mean there's some unbelievably skillful djs that are out there
0: and talk to me about just and before you go to your last one I'm scratching like do you know how do you know how to do I that do like so not, that when you watch no, movies and i've stuff seen like it, it. You and i'm, yeah, I'm in
2: complete awe of it and done properly obviously it's it's uh it's phenomenal. But that, again, that's more hip-hop. That's more of a hip-hop sound. Yeah, is, that's okay. more you'd find that more in like a hip-hop kind of vibe. The stuff I play is more kind of house music, deep house, soul, that kind of bit more rhythmic, okay. bit more melodic kind of a, a vibe. But, I mean, those guys are just ridiculous when you see what they can do, cutting and scratching and that kind of stuff. Are,
0: are they damaging the records no, no, when
2: they no, do that or no? not at all. they are probably no. work, okay. go, go through some needles, but the, the vinyl itself wouldn't get damaged, but the needles will probably take a bit of a battery.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask uh, How much do you remember of what you played that
2: um, night? Probably most of the set because I I would always have a, a three or four different kind of sets of records. And it, my set would probably compile of about 20 to 25 tracks. And I would know exactly what kind of set I would be playing for that particular crowd. So whenever I went to a venue, you would look at the audience that you're playing for and then decide, okay, this needs to be a bit more of like a – a harder crowd. This is a bit more of a heavy, deeper house kind of crowd, or this is a bit more of a melodic, vocal kind of a crowd. So you had to improvise and adapt your your set according to the people that you were playing for. But that particular night was a bit more of a it was a bit more of a soulful housey vibe, a bit more of a happy upbeat kind of a crowd. So I remember quite a few of the tracks. Yeah. So it was good good. Time. Awesome, what, what well the last you got? one, I'm actually a little embarrassed life? to to bring up actually. I, I went to a Ma- Madonna concert. Britney Spears. No, Madonna.
1: Did I hear Britney I Spears concert? To, oh I would. I went
2: to,
0: oh Madonna. I would
1: that's I went awesome. to
2: Madonna in Chicago with Aidan Harrison, who everybody on this show is is well aware of. And he managed to get a couple of tickets. I personally am not a fan of Madonna's music, but as far as putting on a show and entertainment goes, she was absolutely phenomenal. I think she was in her late 50s at the time, possibly early 60s, but the energy that she uh, exuded on the stage, and needless to say, some of the outfits were pretty outrageous. And we had unbelievable seats; we're only about four or five rows back on the side of the stage, so we got to see pretty much everything. But it was, as, as far as entertainment goes, it was you know absolutely brilliant and, and worth every penny. I can see why some of these people, why well, they they fill the crowds that they do, because the entertainment value was was amazing, absolutely brilliant.
0: I liked her early stuff, borderline, but once she went to the pop up, don't preach. I turned you out. Her.
2: You left. You
0: Yeah. So that—that's uh, a famous movie line, guys. Come on, that's a famous movie line. All right. Uh, it was, what, it what, was it? Vision West? Quest? No, no, it was Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> hey, the, uh, question on that, PJ. What era of Madonna
2: was that? Talking? What year? I mean, it was one of her later concerts. So, I, I, Aiden and I went there probably 2010. So about eleven years ago. Oh. I, I, yeah, I don't know if yeah. you, she's Ill, even still performing or doing concerts. I'm not. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Crystal. Yeah. You play, I,
3: did you play the hits? She, she
2: went through right, right through the bag, and it was absolutely. Did she? Oh yeah. And the crowd just er- on certain tracks just erupted. Yeah.
0: Did she? Did she do crazy for you?
2: Not to me personally, but she did she do did. the whole repertoire. She went right, did, right
0: from from the Vision Quest soundtrack. By the way, <laughs> crazy for you. Just yeah. FYI. Bringing it back, bringing it back <laughs> home. <laughs> no, that's cool. Hey, I would love to see, I would have loved, it's one of those things, you know what, when she dies, you're going to like read in the New York Times that Madonna dies of whatever and you're going to be like, wow, I saw her when she was alive. You could tell your uh, kids we'll that. Or, so it's one of, one of those yeah. things. So there's always a lot of regrets. Yeah. I don't know if one of my regrets is going to be not seeing Madonna, but I could see I could see for some people it could certainly be that. She was, So don't be ashamed, PJ. Don't be ashamed right, of seeing I mean, Madonna, PJ, is what we're trying okay. to say. It, it is what it all is. Right,
1: fair enough. <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. There's more? Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor. So how are your squash courts looking these days? Are the ball marks starting to add up? Do your courts need some attention and care? Well, in the US, there's a new solution coming your way. Pro Sport Court can be your one-stop shop for all your court care needs, from standard cleaning, painting, floor sanding, all the way up to lighting upgrades. Pro Sport Court, can have your courts looking like new. Reach out to squash at gmail.com to learn more. Now back to our show.
0: So I'm gonna go next. So the, the first concert I ever saw was in 1977 in New Haven. I saw Crosby Still's Nash. In, in one of their tours uh, when they were still together. Neil Young was kind of in and out of the band at the time. So that was my first concert, but I can't say it was memorable because I had I had somewhat of a misguided youth, as they say. I was a misguided youth. So some of these concerts are not are a little bit more fuzzy than they probably should be. So, I don't. How quite... would you describe your adulthood then? <laughs> it, it, I think I'm unguided now as opposed to misguided. <laughs> okay, okay. That's <laughs> so, yeah, for, very fair. Yeah. Sorry. So I, no, no, no problem. I appreciate you chiming in, Connor, speaking of uh, misspent youths. So, the most memorable concert I think I've ever went to, and it was because it was so built up and I, I expected so much of it and it lived up to the hype, was seeing Springsteen for the oh, first wow. time. So it was during the rising tour, it was at giant stadium. So it was probably like 2003 or four. So after his, it was when he wrote the rising after nine 11. And then he went out on tour with it, like in 02 to 04 and basically played around the world. He must've, he probably played giant stadium and continental arena, like 20 times during that tour. But Springsteen had always been built up to me as being like the person you need to see a concert in, in person. His, you might not like his music. You might not, you know, think he's, he's, he's a great musician. You might not think he's a great lyricist, but in concert, it's awesome. So giant stadium, 75,000 seat stadium, just a immense place. And we had seats in the way upper deck, you know, as far, as far away from the stage as you could possibly. And I, before the band starts we're like, I'm like, how great is it? How great could this possibly be? I mean, we're so far away from this guy. We, it might as well be, you know, I, they could put somebody up there like a Bruce Springsteen impersonator. I wouldn't know any better. I'm so far away. And uh, he came out and by midway through the concert, I felt like I was in a intimate, like 5,000 seat venue. It was just a show of a yeah. lifetime. It was just every song. I always try to explain to people about that experience. And so I flash forward to go seeing, now I've seen Springsteen probably 20 times. And I saw him at Madison square garden one time and we were sitting in the upper deck again, cause I'm cheap and that's, I always buy the cheap tickets. And these two kids were sitting next to me and my wife, my wife and myself, these two kids were probably 15 years old, you know, well, way too young to be Springsteen fans. So they were sitting next to me and as I'm want to do talk to strangers at concerts, um, I said, Hey, what are you guys doing here? Do you like Springsteen? And they said, <laughs> making me instantly feel, they said, no, my parents are huge Springsteen fans. And they said that we need to see them. So they bought us these
2: tickets.
0: (laughs) And so uh, they, the I was like, cool, you'll enjoy And they're they're like young kids. They they probably were just there as a lark and whatnot. So um, halfway through the concert, I looked at them and the kid went to me, he said in his quote, and I always forget it, never forget his quote. He goes, holy shit. He goes, every one of his songs is an encore. Wow." And, and that, that kind of explains the Springsteen okay. show, you know, every show, every song's an encore, every song he goes balls to the walls, goes out. And it's just an amazing thing. So if you've never seen him, even at, I, I'm guessing they're probably going to tour one more time before they all start dying. Cause most of the E street band is, is passed away at this point. So I, I highly recommend it. So that was my, my, that's always been my first and foremost, like my greatest concert experience of my, my unguided, my unguided uh, adulthood. So the secondly is I saw Bono play U2 play, like I think, eight times during their atomic how to dismantle an atomic bomb tour. I was on a board of a squash organization and the chairman of that board had a box at Madison square garden. So I was able to go see you two play in a box at Madison square garden, every show during that wow. tour. And it was quite a few, but I also won tickets believe it or not for some raffle to go see him up in Hartford. And I got inside what was the little ellipse that they had. So, you know, they had the show and then there's floor seats, but inside uh, he had a, a <laughs> semicircle ellipse in which he went around like singing to try to like get out into the crowd or not. And I got tickets inside the ellipse and it went dark. We were inside the ellipse and we were like backing away from the stage because it was just packed up by the stage in that little area there. And we were just kind of leaning back saying, Hey, this is a great, you know, we're still only 50 feet away from him. lights went down, lights come back out five minutes later. And Bono, I look back and Bono is standing like two feet from me. Wow literally on my shoulders uh, starting the concert so he like moved out to there and it was just like holy shit, it's bono and we sat there and he said he sang like four songs right in front of me so that was an incredible experience and again i don't think bono's as good as Springsteen. i think they have a little bit of karaoke-ness to them and bono's voice is not even near a lot of other people's his, his voice is kind of yeah. shitty actually at this point so but the actual show they put on was awesome It was absolutely awesome last and uh, certainly not least this one involves chris so when chris uh, and i started working together in new york he came along and he's like this young kid and i like music and we kind of hit it off and we started going to these shows and chris would drag me to these random shows in the bowels of basements in new york that we'd pay like five bucks and go see the best bands. venues yeah for sure but bands i'd never heard of um chris would like this is how old i am chris would burn me a cd so i could play it out of cd <laughs> before i would go and and i'd, I'd listen to him and i'd like. yeah let's go see them and we'd pay five bucks or ten bucks and go see them. so he brought me to um it was the it was i'm trying to think i think it was the music hall of williamsburg if, if i'm not mistaken and we saw his golden messenger which is a, you know, an, an, an indie folk band, a uh, f- uh, f- folk rock band, and a, a band called The Tallest Man on Earth. And they played back-to-back in this tiny venue in Brooklyn, and we were right up on the stage. And His Golden Messenger came out, and actually that's the band we just saw up in Connecticut last week also. Um, and they were awesome. They were just like put on a great rock show, and I was like, holy crap, this is like really incredible. And it was like 10 bucks. I said, I can't imagine this next guy, who I've never heard, is gonna be any better. And then tallest man came out and played, um, love, love actually, is that the name of his song that I like, or what is love? Um, uh,
3: Yeah, no, it's, it's love actually
0: love actually. Yeah. And just like, I was like mesmerized. It was like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in person. It was 10 bucks and it was in this little, little dinky hall in Brooklyn. And it was just one of the, it's one of those things where you realize why you love music was going to that, a show like that. And Chris has, has brought me to a ton of those shows and some were God awful. I mean, I'm talking God awful where I left like I'd be there like 10 minutes and I said, "Rick, Chris, I'm getting on the subway. I'm going home. <laughs> I, so I, I
3: think uh, I think we can file Deer Hunter under that one.
0: You, you love you love the bands that have deer like Deer Tick, Deer Hunter, uh, Caribou, <laughs> all these weird deer bands that you like. Yeah. And some of them are really bad. But yeah. So those three experiences were incredible. I, I've um, I, Well, what I was, made it so special? Which one?
2: The last
1: one. The last one you just
0: said. The last, it was just it was intimate. And they were like full bands and were, they're were like every instrument there, the, the vocals were incredible. I think probably the intimacy of it. And since then, I've seen both those folk. I've seen His Golden Messenger again, again, last Saturday. And I've seen Tallisman now, I think three or four times in his, in different settings, in very small venues and in larger venues. I think we saw him at the Beacon Theater. And it we was did, still the, the night after. Right. And then we ran into him at a bar one night in, in Brooklyn. Yep. Chris, yep. He was sitting having, having drinks and we went over to him and told him we were big fans. And he yeah,
3: I actually met his the messenger that same night in the lobby of music hall Williamsburg. And we had a great conversation and he was like, so down to earth and just like cemented his spot as one of my favorite artists. So I'm like, man, he's, he's such a real guy and right. just makes like such authentic music. I was so there for it.
0: Yeah. And Chris, 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 recognizing these people in, in the wild. It's one thing to go to a show and like, yes, that's his golden messenger there. We're going, we paid a ticket. It's on the ticket. It says his golden messenger. So we know it's him. Chris, on the other hand, we're in line somewhere trying to get into this little club in Brooklyn. And, and Chris points out like two people at us, Hey, that's the drummer from War on drugs. <laughs> I, like, oh. I said, how do you know that? And like, he's like, yeah, yeah, he's really good. And he Chris goes up and says yeah. hi to him. And then Chris starts freaking him out. And starts saying, "Yeah, I was when I was in Germany. I saw you play at this club in the basement in somebody's house." And Chris starts listing off all the places he's followed this guy around the world. And these guys get really freaked out. It's really funny seeing the reaction. Number one, being recognized, but number two, being told that Chris. Do you say see, like,
1: "Hey, don't worry. I have no restraining orders. Don't worry about that." <laughs>
0: Oh, it, I'm, it, it, I'm just a huge fan. The, the war on drugs drummer. I we met him later at a show. My he he had turned out he actually played in a band with a guy I know years and years ago. And Chris and I went to the show and we went backstage into their dressing room. And Chris, I introduced Chris to him and Chris started talking to him about all the times he's seen him in all the different places. And the kid just like his, he was like looking at me like, what the F is going on? The, here?
3: The, fir- the first time I saw the war on drugs was in the upstairs of a drag show venue in Washington, D.C. And. <laughs> 2012 so this is like far before you know they were grammy winning artists
0: right right exactly the case but yeah it's
3: stories like that you know that's what that's what really freaks out the artists
0: definitely definitely which is which is a definitely a trait of yours freaking out artists so connor before we go to chris because chris's uh, music stories uh is is what really we're all waiting for talk to us about your musical experiences besides your critical djing knowing that djing and playing guitar is the same thing which we know that you don't like the same thing Right, God,
1: sorry. I'll explain it to you offline. Um, <clears throat> all right, the first one I think I'd say is Coachella, and I went there. Really was I don't. It wasn't the first year, but I think it was like the second year. It was there where it was just one weekend, like four days. And for anyone who doesn't know what Coachella is, it's turned into like one of the biggest music festivals, in certainly in the US. Um, and it was just a great opportunity. It's four days. You're just going around like every. There's so many stages. Go around multiple bands. For me, I was a huge Weezer fan, still am. And they it was my first opportunity to see them live. So, but the the overall atmosphere of just being at an event like that was just uh mind-blowing and really, really fun. I did also see Chemical Brothers there, which my friend dragged me to, and I give a huge thumbs up. Coachella. The next one was actually the vent, I'll leave the venue first. It was a Chicago uh, House of Blues. And uh, there was this band I became a huge fan of. This was back when Napster and you had to like download, took you like 18 hours to download one song and people were like sharing music. So that, that real old school, I shouldn't say really old school, that, that first venture into digital discovery. And there was a band called OAR or Of a Revolution. And I got a chance to see them in uh, Chicago. And it was really funny because they were the, the opener. And so we go, it is packed. Like everyone's into it. Just like, everyone's singing the songs They're really good live performance and they're the opening band and then the next band comes on the entire i'm not joking 98 percent of the venue
0: left so oar gets a lot of crap on online chris maybe you could tell us why uh are they, they're kind of thought as like so people say like I, I i kind of wasted my life following oar around the country and things such as that like why do they get such slack now on the uh, on the internet
3: I feel like they they kind of respond in this '90s era of like the Counting Crows and like the emergence of ska and like this kind of wannabe new wave reggae, and I, I think Connor, you know, correct oh, me yeah, if I'm that, wrong, but I, I think you're right. That's, that's just a harsh <laughs> way of saying it. I, I mean, it's very enjoyable. I was gonna say if, if you're into that, if you're influence. into that, you
2: yeah.
0: Know. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they get so much shit online. It's ridiculous. I'm like, I'm I'm afraid to go see them. They used to headline like Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve. Yeah. I mean, they were big time. So what else you got, Connor?
1: And so it's actually not too dissimilar from PJs because of the reason. And I think similar to all of this, like live experience done well, or live music experience is just amazing. Like it's hard to see what beats that, right? So this was Soldier Field in Chicago. 2004, five dead of winter. Ooh, it was negative 30 degrees.
2: (laughs) Good time for an outdoor concert.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Outdoor concert. And I get this call from someone who's like, Hey, I've, I've some tickets uh, to go to soldier field tonight. Do you, do you want some? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take them. And then next thing just keeps happening. I just keep getting more and more free tickets. And so like, I just keep asking more and more people to come and I'm doing a whole kind of sales pitch. The punchline, it was the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones wow. played in the middle of the winter at Soldier Field? At Soldier Field, yeah. Wow. And wow. these were like VIP tickets. I was, you know, between 40 to 60 feet from the stage. and It's a wide stage, but like when Mick would come over towards us, mm-hmm. like he, I, had, I was like, you could see him. And what they did, it was like they had hot air blowing on stage. So like he was he was in his like shirt, like running around, but like just pumping with hot air there. And it was one of the same thing. It was like these top performers bring down the house. Like it was unbelievable. These guys, (laughs) you know, they're not young, and they're just like rocking it. I and and some of the things like it was so cold. Like we were drinking like whiskey just to stay warm. I was
2: good excuse, Connor. Good excuse. Yeah.
1: we would go up to like vendors and a- ask for like, can I get some gloves from you? Like the latex gloves to just try and stay warm. Put that just like we were freezing, but it was such a memorable experience. And That was made before, before weather forecasting, right? So you had no way of knowing it was going to be cold. Well, yeah, I, I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't. Um, it all happened very last minute, so I, I didn't have time to go back home. So I had to like. Bill, would
2: it, you <laughs> not have gone purely because of the weather? You no, 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 to no,
1: but I would have known
0: I would have been so prepared. I would have been the yeah. one selling people gloves and saying, hey, yeah, you want a pair of gloves yeah. for a hundred dollars here, Connor, hundred bucks. Yeah, here's, here's my gloves. You know, I, I would 100 percent. went. That's one of my biggest regrets is never seeing the Rolling Stones live. I, yeah. I never I've never had the opportunity. I guess I did. I could have bought tickets, but um, I'm more of one of these people who like wait for somebody to give me tickets.
1: A hundred percent. And prior I mean, I think literally the tickets were between two fifty to $400. And prior to that experience, I'd always, always like, why would people pay any like, like that's ridiculous. Anything above a right. hundred bucks. I was like, what? Totally get it. It is, it was a, such an experience. experience. Yeah. The, R- you,
3: RIP Charlie Watts.
1: Yes. RIP yeah. Charlie Watts
0: and RIP Con- Connor listing uh the Rolling Stones after OAR. So there's that too. So we won't get into that though. As is no, I'm saving the
1: best for last.
0: Okay. All right. We usually go in order.
1: One, two, three, but whatever. No, I think there's... <laughs> Bill, as you've demonstrated time and time again, there are no rules. <laughs> there, there are rules, you break them. So That's <laughs>
0: true. So, Christopher.
1: Right. Talk, um,
0: so, first, I'm going to ask you a couple questions before you get okay. into your stories. If okay. you had a guess, you're 32 years old, how many live music shows have you been to in your lifetime? PJ's been to three or two.
3: Over 200.
0: That's it. I thought it'd be more than that. Maybe,
3: maybe over 300.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Maybe Maybe, over 400. (laughs) Maybe, maybe maybe 500.
3: Depends on the week.
0: Yeah. Did you, have you been going to music since you were like a a little kid before you had the wherewithal to go on your own? Were people bringing you music? What, what made you such a fan of, of, uh, of music?
3: Yeah, so some of my earliest memories in life were playing with Legos and listening to the Beatles with my aunt, you know, back when I was probably three or four years old. And I was a Beatles obsessive when I was a kid. And I can remember phases of my life where I discovered different bands and those different bands kind of sent me on this new trajectory of music discovery. I can remember listening to Led Zeppelin for the first time in fourth grade. And I thought that was the coolest shit ever and that they were the best band in the world. (laughs) And that that also coincided with a trip to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in like fifth grade. My family went on a road trip. Yeah. So that was that was the other part. So I played trumpet for 10 years and I played it through college. And it's definitely an incredible experience, kind of producing music yourself being a part of an ensemble and so the performance aspect of it was was always really important to me as well and I probably wouldn't have gotten into the college I did if I wasn't a decent trumpet player so it's always been a really important part of my life and I think the concert scene really kind of picked up when I was in college didn't go to much when I was in high school you know I grew up in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, for you listeners, I doubt any of you know it. There is a squash program there at the Mercersburg Academy. That's kind of where I got into squash. And uh, Mark Talbot is also a Mercersburg Academy alum for all you squash people out there. But it's also tough to get anywhere. You know, Washington, D.C. was the closest big city to us, but you had to drive an hour to get to kind of the outskirts of the metro system. So it wasn't really accessible. But then I went to college in Richmond, which had a very vibrant music scene. And that made things a lot easier. And I'd have friends where we'd rotate up to DC. And so Richmond was a really amazing city to, to live in for four years in college. Saw some great shows there. And the last eight years in New York City, really the music capital of the world. And that's where a lot of my best music experiences were. And it's been really fun moving down to Philadelphia, which is a great music town. And it's been really fun exploring a lot of the different venues here. A lot of, um, kind of Philly local bands, emerging ones, established ones. It's a great part of my life. And just in general too, thank you for having me on. Normally, whenever I talk to people about music, I ruin conversations after a few minutes, so to be given the platform to just ramble on about my music experiences is uh, a truly a privilege. Uh, so go
0: ahead, give us, give us your three most memorable, if you can, seeing all the shows you have, you've seen, then I'll have some follow-up questions for sure
3: really tough to narrow it down to three and regrettably bill you're not a part of any of them i thought it might be up there connor i'm a little bit disappointed that our show at the national with the national didn't make your top three
1: it was definitely on the list it was definitely on the list as long as
3: it was on the list and and kind of towards the top that's that's the most i can ask for yeah
1: that was a really cool experience
0: was i at was i there
3: no so the national um and for a little squash connection, Tim Wyant uh, went to high school with uh, the Desner brothers, who are the guitarists of the National, Nashville. and National is now a huge band, huge New York City establishment. But they they came out with a documentary. I think this was maybe 2013, 2014, and they posted on social media saying we have a few extra seats for this documentary, and you know, first people that email us this random Gmail account we will add them to the list for this private screening at Tribeca Film Festival. And that will be followed by an intimate, intimate performance. I think it was like Roslyn Ballroom, maybe. Where was the after show? No, because it was or, no Highline Highline Ballroom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I emailed it and sure, sure, and surely enough day of um, got the tickets. Connor was in the office and I was like, Connor, I have tickets to go see the Nationals like debut of their documentary at Tribeca Film Festival. Let's go. Um, Bill was not in the office that day, for the record. But uh, yeah, Connor and I had an amazing night. Robert De Niro introduced the film. Wow. Which was pretty crazy. Yeah, pretty cool. And then, you know, the the Highland Ballroom's probably like four hundred capacity venue and they played a private show after the documentary screening. It was wow. incredible.
0: Uh, it. Uh, we had seen uh, Connor and I had seen the national, I think, in a park in Brooklyn previous to that. Is that correct, great. Connor? Yeah it was with remember, remember that that terrible girl you were going out with and she was just like miserable <laughs> the whole time we were there Do you, honestly that's
1: seriously do you remember that i remember the uh the event yeah okay all right we had forgotten
2: about it until she she she,
1: she was i mean it was
0: so much fun we had vip seats for that also through tim wyant through like i think we got it through like a city squash auction or something like that and this girl was i mean we had seats and everything and this girl was just miserable the whole time and it was like the like so much fun it was a beautiful night in brooklyn and she was just (laughs) like being being miserable so that's it. Go ahead. Sorry.
3: And, anyway, yeah. So I haven't even started the top three yet. You know, but right, that good. that was it. That was an honorable mention that I, I wanted to bring up.
1: Right. Um, mine too, Chris. That was that was actually my number yeah. four. I'm glad we're on the same page, there, Connor. <laughs>
3: so uh, my first one is kind of a series of shows. It's a, a band called Yola Tango. They are an indie New York City establishment. They started in the 1980s, and they really kind of created the indie scene that we know today in terms of being independent record label. They were an emerging band, kind of the same generation as R.E.M. and Nirvana when those bands were starting to really break through in the late 80s and early 90s. But they're just older than Bill in their mid to late 60s. And they're still like making great music. But the, the special thing that they do is they have Hanukkah residency shows. So eight nights they play every single night and every night they have a surprise unannounced opener and a surprise unannounced comedic act that performs in between the opener and them. And so I've been to six or seven of these over the last few years. And the most recent one was actually last week, the night after we saw Hiskel the Messenger Bill. That's whenever I went back down to the city. And they originally started in Hoboken. And there was a, a venue there called Maxwell's, which shuttered in I think five or six years ago. And then once Maxwell Maxwell shuttered. Um, they moved their residency to Bowery Ballroom, which is you know one of the most intimate, beautiful venues in New York, 500 person. But of the times I've been there, they've had incredible acts. So for comedy, I saw David Cross open up and I saw most recently Joe Parra, who has his own show on Adult Swim and
0: HBO. Do any of
3: you guys know Joe Parra?
0: I do because you sent me a video of him it was the oddest youtube i've ever watched i thought he had parkinson's disease but he just pret- <laughs> he pretends he's a 90-year-old man or something he has a
3: very unique comedy brand and yeah. i i urge i urge the listeners to go check out his show you can watch it on hbo go it's joe para talks to you and each episode is just like a 15-minute gem it's it's almost like asmr comedy
0: yeah it's really um, weird it's like it's like dad jokes and he pretends he's like a dad with parkinson's
3: yeah, and he's like he's this he's a super wholesome choir teacher in like Michigan, and it's it's a really amazing show. And I urge the listener to check it out. Let us know what you guys think in the fan follow up. You know, um, <laughs>
0: wow, good good plug there.
3: And uh, other other comedic acts that have opened up: Bob Odenkirk, John Stewart, John Oliver. Um, The the whole roster of like the Daily Show comedian scene have all performed there. So to show up on one of these nights, not have any clue who it's going to be. And they just have this little pen drawn poster. Once you walk into the basement and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, this band's opening up or this comedic act is playing. The excitement levels are just Unreal, and sometimes it'll be like something really obscure that some band that they like knew in the '80s, back when they were right. starting up, and it's like their first performance in like 30 years. But sometimes it's legendary. So Graham Nash showed up um, in one of their encores, and they played like a bunch of Holly's songs with Graham Nash. One one time I was there, Sharon Van Etten, Sun Ra Orchestra, and the the type of crowd for a Yellow Tango show is just incredible. They're they're so attentive. Yolatango Tango play a really wide range of music. They can play really loud punk songs and rock and shoogays, but they can also be extremely quiet and these whispery ballads. And so to command a room where not a single person's talking, everybody's hanging on a thread of every note, that's, that's what those shows are like. And so it's just magical.
2: So excuse my ignorance here. You mentioned the REM and you mentioned Nirvana's being well-renowned so-called indie bands if this group that you just mentioned here were the kind of start of all of this, how come they're so under the radar? Obviously, they're known extremely well within that indie circle, but how come R.E.M. and Nirvana had a very different kind of path?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think... It's a great question. I mean, they are really renowned. They play venues like Beacon Theater and the, the Town Hall in New York, and they sell out those venues, and they sell out these residencies. So they have a really passionate following, and they've been around for so long, too, that it's... It really touches a lot of different generations and there's a lot of variety within those crowds, really commercial success just, you know, shoots artists up there. And in that period, you know, it smells like teen spirit, just kind of skyrocketed Nirvana into different worlds. Same with REM, but around those same times, they were negotiating kind of the same record labels within that space in the early nineties. There's an interesting book called uh, Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock that I read, and it basically chronicles that kind of rise of the indie scene and how the the different major label records and indie records and really interesting if anyone really wants to dig deeper on that. A little another aside. So, the first time I saw Yola Tango was with Simon Park in oh, San Francisco. He, he loves um, to be yeah, yeah. And he, yeah. he didn't know who they were at the time. And this was the the first time I was working the Oracle NetSuite open out in San Francisco. And there's this free folk festival in San Francisco called Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. And Yola Tango were playing like a uh, 3 p.m. set. It's in Golden Gate Park, just gorgeous. And it was finals day of the Oracle NetSuite Open. So, you know, the, the matches didn't start till seven. So we had a free afternoon and I was like, Simon, this band's going to be awesome. Let's go. And uh, we had a great time. And, he and enjoyed it. it. He loved it. Yeah, it um, was
2: funny parking because back back in the day when we were playing, he was very, very uh, close with a guy called Del Harris, who some of you may or may not know. He was one of the best British players, in my opinion, of all time. And, and he and Parkey, uh, Dell would take trips up to Yorkshire to train with Simon, and Simon take, would take trips down to Essex. It was more Simon coming down to Essex to hit with Dell, really, because Del didn't really like to travel too much. But those guys would play, and it would be the most intense practice matches ever. And the loser had to buy the winner a CD of his choice. And those two always had this really kind of eclectic Unique sound, and it was always those kind of indie bands. So all the bands that you're talking about, I'm sure. I mean, Dell won't listen to this podcast, but Dell <laughs> was, there was massively into his uh, indie rock and, and his indie music as well. So he and Parky were, you know massively into that kind of scene so it's no surprise he would have been interested in that
3: Actually, yeah so yellow tango had released a a covers album at that point and so they're kind of touring behind that but they covered the cure friday i'm in love um, which was one of simon's favorite songs and i can just remember him being over the moon whenever they played that (laughs) so that that was a really cool memory yeah um right so that was number three <laughs> <laughs> do, do you need a break do we
0: need to cut here no, guys, no no so no go, ready for number two no oh, no yeah. we're ready that, no that's that's riveting stuff actually I, I like especially when when pj after listening to it said that band you've just been talking about and he couldn't name that band if
3: you gave him a thousand dollars i still can't <laughs> yola tango for you yola dear, tango, dear, yes you you dear listener let us know in the fan follow-up what you think of yola tango yeah and let us know as... your your <laughs> exactly. favorite yola tango songs
2: yeah <laughs> thanks bill no problem
3: so number two is one of my favorite bands of all time arcade fire who I've taken Bill to see a couple of times, just top band for me. When I was talking about how, you know, I discovered different bands and that kind of just sent me on different paths of music discovery. When I heard arcade fire for the first time it was really a life changer there was a soccer podcast called world football daily and their producer had played some arcade fire songs in the intro and i was like holy crap what is this i, I have to listen to this and that was kind of back in the day it wasn't napster it was after napster but it was kind of like the limewire craze <laughs> i don't know if you were ever part of that connor but yeah yeah so discovered Arcade Fire became quickly became one of my favorite bands in um, in high school. And that continued through college. And then I saw them in Philadelphia for the first time in um, 2010 on their suburbs tour. But this show in particular was actually the night after the US Open finals in 2013. So Arcade Fire had just really they just recorded their new album in New York City. It was produced by James Murphy, who's the lead singer of LCD Sound System. And Arcade Fire, kind of kind of like a David Bowie in terms of every album cycle. They really change things up, and that can be the sound, the aesthetic, everything. So this record that they released was kind of their dance record and disco record. And James Murphy being kind of one of the goats in terms of dance music in New York City. It was um, recorded in Electric Lady Studios, which is legendary. So they were on the cusp of releasing this amazing album and they announced the week before that they were playing these shows under the moniker, The Reflectors. And it was in this like abandoned warehouse in Brooklyn. And I remember working the U.S. Open, seeing on Twitter that they announced these shows, got these tickets for the night after the U.S. Open final. And I was so excited. My my younger brother, Brendan, he was at Con College at the time, and he jumped on a train down to join me to see them for the first time. And they had a, some rules around these shows. You had to be in either a, f- a full formal suit or a costume Re- required attire. So I think I had like two seats at the time. So my brother and I, we, we dressed up, went to the went to this like really, really obscure part of Brooklyn on Miserable Street in Bushwick. And we it was there was a line outside and then we got in and it was really a bare bones warehouse. They didn't even have bathrooms in the building. It was like Porter Johnson. There. Um, but they had this setup. And so we're standing around for a little bit and probably like 400 people there. And then James Murphy just pops out of this curtain. He's wearing this mask and he's like, Ladies and gentlemen, Arcade Fire and then just like hides, and then the curtain drops and they just go right into the, the title track of um, the new album Reflector, which is this eight minute epic dance song that just floors everybody. Yeah. And they're like 20 feet away from me and my brother. And <laughs> we're just like, absolutely losing it at how like close it is how good the music is. I'm not a good dancer. But you know, like, I, I my body was just doing whatever it was like, I was completely possessed. And they p- ended up playing, you know, most of the new album in, in addition to a bunch of their standards. And it was just It was one of the best experiences of my life, one of the best nights of my life. And then afterwards, James Murphy did a two-hour DJ set. So, you know, we all in all, it was like a three- to four-hour experience, and I'll never forget it. That's cool. Yeah. So, Arcade Fire listeners, check them out. How could that not be
0: your number one experience?
3: My number one is at the Newport Folk Festival. And Newport is... Again, similar to the Yolo Tango Hanukkah shows, I, I think they're just pure magic. For those who don't know, Newport Folk Festival is like the original festival. It started in the 1950s. It's where Bob Dylan went electric. It's where James Taylor was playing a set whenever we landed on the moon. It's got so much history. And the setting is, is just breathtaking. It's right on the water in the Newport Harbor. There's Fort Adams. It's kind of this peninsula. So you're um, surrounded by boats and the ocean. And it's always held the last weekend of July. And so whenever you get perfect weather for it, it's just, you can't beat it. So my, my younger brother, Brendan, again, was involved in this story and he was working Mark Talbot's squash camps in Newport. And that Newport Folk Fest fell at the end of one of these camp weeks. And so we're like hey let's let's go and my parents are also from rhode island so we kind of had that as our home base um so we got tickets um for one day and uh you know it it's a little bit different than a coachella where doors open at 11. they have it's an older crowd often and they have like four stages set around um, people will show up and they'll bring lawn chairs um, most of these tents are have seated areas because it's a pretty older crowd Um, And a lot of times you'll get like proper like folk artists that are there. Um, So we got there early because there is this artist called Leon Bridges who was playing at one thirty in the afternoon and he had just released his debut record called Coming Home, which you'll hear in any coffee shop you walk into these days.
1: He's amazing.
3: He's incredible. He's incredible. And the fact that he was playing at one of the smallest stages in Newport, Nobody knew him. And I listened to one or two of his singles. And I was like, this is really good. We should check this guy out. I think he's I think he's onto something. And he comes out there and right away, he's just like, everybody get up. Let's let's dance. Let's have a good time. And he plays through his entire debut album. And it was just stunning. Wow. And it was so much fun. And he's an incredible performer. But to see him on that stage, on side stage, riling up this old crowd who, you know, know nothing about him, but then he plays this amazing kind of roots soul music and like roots R&B music. It was incredible. And then uh, this was actually, this was um, the same summer as when Bill and I saw The Tallest Man on Earth and His Golden Messenger. And both of those artists were playing Newport Folk. So this is a few weeks after we saw them in New, in, uh, New York so then to see both tallest man on earth and his golden messenger again after leon bridges that afternoon i was riding high already and then one of the special things about newport is that they'll have surprise slots un- unannounced slots and james taylor will show up unannounced and just drive his boat he, he lives in uh, jamestown rhode island and so he'll like drive his boat over and he'll just show up for a surprise set i, I was there two years ago and he showed up with cheryl crow and did a couple songs with her but we weren't sure what to expect with this unannounced set and it was leading into roger waters who was the um headliner that night of pink floyd so we were like you know what we're not sure what this this unannounced opener could be let's give it a chance so we got really close and just kind of waited it out and then it ended up being my morning jacket who, oh wow um is you know one of the greatest american rock bands of the last two to three decades And then they they just released an album called The Waterfall. They played like eight or nine songs off of the waterfall, a couple other older standards, and then they stayed on and played as Roger Waters backing band and played through a bunch of Pink Floyd classics. So
0: so this is all the same day. This is
3: all the same day. So it's like Leon Bridges, his golden messenger, Tallest Man on Earth, My Morning Jacket into Roger Waters. Wow. And that was The sing the singularly greatest day of music that I've ever experienced. (laughs)
2: You're find it hard to top that. <laughs> I'm glad you
0: went last to be honest with you it's like the first time I haven't I haven't chimed in at all because I'm like mesmerized by all this I'm like listen, <laughs> his his seeing Chris at these things and seeing sometimes the state of mind he's and it's amazing your clarity on rec- recollect <laughs> uh re- recollecting all of this um so I have couple no questions. idea what you're talking about Bill. <laughs> exactly just a couple quick questions before we move on to the squash portion of this for you um oh, wait we're talking one... about squash
3: on this podcast I thought it was I thought it was just music <laughs>
0: what was the most disappointing show you ever? Ever went to, like hyped up, you were ready to go to it. You'd been looking forward to seeing this and you went there and you're like, eh, not great. Or do you not have those experiences because all you're one of these people, like all music is it's all one song and it's all great music, blah, blah, blah. Um,
3: I, I would say maybe Mumford and Sons. Um, at Forest Hills. It was after they had like dropped their electric album. And so everybody was expecting like the whole uh, stomping folk music, you know, that they were made famous for after their first couple of albums. But I think for a lot of people that that third album was kind of a dud. And so to see them like play an amazing venue like Forest Hills, but then, you know, probably a th- half of their set was only kind of like the the anthems that everybody knows and loves. Um, that was a little bit disappointing, you know, I I was kind of hoping for, you know, maybe three quarters of, you know, more of the folk vibes. Um, but it was still a great show, you know, and I kind of feel bad in terms of bringing that up, but I had kind of really high expectations for that. And then that was maybe a little bit lower. I've been to some other bad shows, but usually it's just like things that I'd have free tickets to, or somebody brought me to, and, you know, for good reason, they're not really memorable.
2: Do you have a, do you have a a preferable genre that you listen to or you it sounds like you're pretty much right across the board
3: No, it's like I, I've always tried to have a full spectrum of appreciation. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in terms of what I'll actually spend money on and, and go to, you know, usually it's more in the rock realm. Um, yeah. But, you know, you got to you have to appreciate everything. You know, and you got to be willing to go to things that might challenge you as a listener um, or as an audience. And that's how you kind of
2: learn to love music even more. I'm sure that when somebody like yourself goes to a concert coming from a music background, you played the trumpet, your experience of going and watching a band would be extremely different from somebody like mine, for example. You're probably going to pay a lot more attention to sound quality, to the instruments that are being played. Which, for example, when I went to watch, say, the Madonna concert, I was being entertained, but it's a very different kind of a vibe. Do you see what I mean? Because you, mm-hmm. it will be a little bit like if I went to watch a particular squash match compared to to an amateur player, what I'm going to be watching is going to be very di- – or what I'm looking for is going to be very different from what they're going to be watching. And it's probably the similar scenario for yourself, where you? Yeah,
3: absolutely. And I think every performance is different, you know, and I think it, it all has to do with the performer. If you're going to a Dodo's concert, you're going to be watching the lead singers, uh, you know, right hand on the guitar because he's an incredible guitar picker. And that's like yeah. the, the engine of, of the, the artist. Or if you're going to my morning jacket show, you're paying attention to Jim James's voice and ridiculous guitar chops that he has um yeah. or you know and and something exciting like arcade fire is when you have like seven band members there's like so much that you can pay attention so to at any on. given point and that's that's part of the amazing thing is is you can spend time, you know, looking at one person, but then you can gain an appreciation for something that you might not have known. Otherwise, that happens a lot,
2: too. Just very quickly, Bill, I know I'm sure you've got more questions. No, so no, no, please. Let's say you've got a bet. Let's say, for example, we use Coldplay as an example, and they'll do a series of shows on back to back nights. Have you ever been to a, a, a like a concert set like that where and you can determine whether one performance or one evening was a better performance than the following night or the and what would be the differences? Does that make sense? So it'd be like a, watching a squash player play. Let's say Paul Cole. He, he played better on Thursday than he did on Friday, but and you can you could kind of tell the differences. Why? How would you differentiate?
3: Yeah, I, I think. I've been to a number of residencies and I think uh, the Yolotango Hanukkah residency is really similar to this where you know, they they literally won't play the same song twice over eight nights. And so um, if you go back and you listen to you look at their set list, you know, you might be like, oh, I wish I was there for that song. Or they played these couple of songs that one night and you had to be there that one night. Otherwise, you're not going to hear it. And so that might lead you to, you know, think that one night was better than the other. I think for the most part, in terms of performance, it's all good performances. It's more, you know, what you're there for. Like, for example, um, similarly, Bill and I went to my morning jacket at the Beacon Theater, and they were doing like a four night residency there but similarly they, w- they weren't playing the same song twice different set lists every night and so the night we went there were a lot of deep cuts bill wasn't thrilled about that there were a lot of like old acoustic songs that they were playing and bill was there for you know he was there for the hits and so i think personally bill might have been a little bit let down even though i was you know thrilled i it, had a great time
0: yeah definitely my, my most disappointing concert experience is my morning jacket because we had great seats I was all pumped up for it. I had never seen my morning jacket live before and I was like all excited for it and I did not know one song. Not one but song. Well that's not to say that they didn't perform well because not they did. to <laughs> say they didn't 100, 100, they didn't perform well
1: for me. Yes.
3: And
0: as we as we know.
2: And it's all comes. about you, Bill.
1: How can we grow the sport of squash? Have you ever thought about that? I've really enjoyed all the different ways I've learned about how to help it grow. But the truth is, there is no silver bullet to achieve great success. In fact, it's really about many pieces of the puzzle coming together to help get this done. However, one of the biggest untapped potentials that I've been excited about for over 10 years is the concept of building outdoor squash courts. But not just squash courts, think outdoor squash clubs. Either way, it's a great way to get more visibility for the sport, and experience a different way to enjoy and share the sport we love. If you think there's an opportunity to get some courts in your area, reach out to us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. And I can share the latest of what's going on in the sport and let's help open up the sport.
0: Chris. Not only are you a musical savant, you are also one of the foremost squash journalists in the country, for sure. I mean, you write for Squash Magazine, you write online for the U.S. Squash site. You basically cover every major squash event in in the country that U.S. Squash hosts. But on top of that, you also cover the NetSuite, you cover the TOC at Grand Central, and you cover the U.S. Open. Most of that is done. You do photography for that. So talk to us about being at those events and and taking pictures. I have a few questions about, about why there's so many pictures taken in squash, but talk, <laughs> talk, talk about what you do at those events from a photography point of view and also from a social media point of view and a journalism point of view.
3: Yeah, well, you know, it's a very small group, squash media. And I think there are more more people on an arcade fire stage than there are who actually work in squash media. So it's, uh, it's an honor. It's an honor to be in this elite line of work it's been a really incredible journey so i'm coming up on my nine-year anniversary of working in squash next month and i've learned so much in this time and I didn't really have any formal background in photography before I got into squash. I had um, some background in journalism. I I'd done some freelance work when I was in Germany um, for a a soccer website about the Bundesliga. So I had a little bit of, of sports journalism experience. But as you, Connor and Bill, know, when you work for U.S. squash, you really have to you have to do a lot yourself and it's there's trial and error. And for, for me personally, when we're having our national championships, we need to tell the story of it to be able to capture that moment in history, to promote it, to make people want to be a part of it, to help grow our community and tell those stories and photography is an, a crucial part of that. And so I remember, I think my first tournament was the 2013 masters, like March of 2013 at Chelsea Piers. Connor was running that event. And I remember Kevin, our boss, beforehand being like, okay, I want some front wall pictures. And I was like, okay, I have no idea what to do. And so, pressing quick, our colleague was like, here, take this camera, put it on an automatic timer and put it in the front end. and you'll see what you get. I was like, okay. So, I was like running on court in between like Chris Gordon and Todd Harrity playing (laughs) um, in, in between games, throwing this camera on. And then I was like checking in between games. I was like, oh crap, like the camera was tilted the wrong way. And it was incredible that I actually got a couple usable pictures, but the success rate was probably like 1% out of like 2000 frames. And I just happened to get a couple of pictures. That was like, was it in
0: a camera box or was it just, yeah, it,
3: it was like a little plastic box that we just cut out a hole of and put the camera (laughs) in there. So a ball could have easily shattered the lens if it had a direct hit on there. Um, so that was like my first foray into squash photography. And I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a success, but we did get usable pictures out of it. And so that's always my bar for successes. As long as we have a couple. You can only in. go up
1: from here.
3: <laughs> exactly. So then I got a little bit better with it. We had a, a, another Nationals down at Charlottesville and Jay Prince of Squash Magazine and our colleague at the time. He just handed me a camera and he's like, here, try it out. And so I jumped on the glass court down in Charlottesville and it was really exciting and I was really pumped whenever I I actually got some decent photos out of that and it was a a lot more manageable than your kind of remote photography. And so that kind of, um, ignited a new kind of interest in squash photography. And so now we I have my, I'm here at the specter center in Philly and I have my own camera and I've been running around with it for the past couple of months and. Capturing. There we go. Nice Spectre Center shirt, PJ. So it's been a journey, but it's been interesting seeing different styles from the few squash photographers that are out there. People like Dale Walker, Michael Balo, who are masters of kind of the remote photography whenever you're um, in venues like Princeton, where there are no photography booths. And so you have to, you know, literally put a camera in a box, protect a box and sit there with a remote and snap the remote, you know, when somebody's lunging towards the front wall, that's an art and that's really tough to do. And then working pro events like netsuite and us open being able to see the master at work steve line
0: i mean he's he's truly the greatest of all time so talk talk to me about that because you do talk about steve line often because i i often say to you um and again you have an appreciation for this that most people don't so i look at squash pictures and i'm like yeah that picture looks just like that other picture i've seen michael (laughs) i've seen um rodriguez dive a thousand times and i've seen a thousand pictures of it and they all look the same but you have always talked about Steve line and that he is the master. He's the best at this. And so so tell us why. What do you see from his photographs that, that maybe the layman, uh, someone like me or just someone who's thumbing through a magazine or online uh, doesn't see?
3: Well, the, the most important part of a good picture is um, it's it's all it's a, a snapshot of time. You have to be in the right place in the right time and be ready to capture whatever that moment is. And so Steve line is somebody who's always in the right place in the right time on a squash court. He knows when, you know, he knows how specific players will celebrate a win or something like that. And he'll position himself accordingly to kind of capture that moment. And it's an art it's, it's a skill. And, and so it's something that he's done for three decades, four decades. And, you I gained so much respect for him, too, because he used to work in the film era and I can't even comprehend what it would be like shooting squash photography in the film era whenever mm-hmm. it's it's such a fast paced sport that it, you really have to check what you're capturing in the moment. Lighting on different courts in the same venue can be totally different. And so you're playing around with your settings as you bop around to different courts and if you were in the film area, you wouldn't be able to check in real time. You wouldn't be able to look back check and be like, time. oh, this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, oh, this picture is a little bit darker. I need to, you know, bump up my ISO a little bit. And and so the fact that, you know, he was involved with the sport for so long and was able to capture so many iconic moments of professional squash. It's really stunning. And I think another shout out to uh, Nathan Clark, who's kind of really stepped up with the PSA in terms of expanding squash photography, not only on court, but, you know, really a lot really capturing what life is like as a squash professional out off the court as well. And you'll see a lot of his work on um, players, um, you know, Instagram profiles and and things like that. So he's he's done a really good job
1: of kind of expanding what squash photography can be. Those uh, pictures he's capturing is really they tell their a story unto themselves, yeah. like he's capturing yeah. the, the emotion of that athlete in our sport. And he actually won a photography award across multiple sports. So in this competition there was like everything from soccer to badminton you name it and squash and and his photography won
2: wow. yeah and it, he's a, he's coming to the game late as well mm-hmm. yep that wasn't his first role at the psa um so how he's evolved is is phenomenal really quick my, my question to you going back to bill asked you the question of, of what takes a good photo obviously you've been doing it for a few years now what playing background Do you have because i'm thinking to to get a good photo it's obviously it it needs for you to be able to anticipate a situation you obviously need to know the sport to some sort of level because you're going to then predict which position this player is going to get into at any given time did you play a decent level yourself and how important is it to have played the sport in the first place
3: I think the playing experience doesn't matter as much as just kind of knowing the pro game. Personally, I I played in high school. My college didn't have a program. I wasn't like an incredible player or anything like that. And I kind of dropped off the squash world for four years in college and then didn't really pick it back up until I started working for U.S. Squash. You're too busy at music. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and graduating. But having spent eight years watching pro events and getting to know these players, and you do develop this knowledge of, of the personalities and you watch the matches. You know, I'm watching the matches just as much as you are up in the commentary booth, down, but just down from the tin. So I, I had some help. We had a Drexel co-oper named Sophia who helped me out the U.S. Open this year, which was fun to kind of have a two person team and so we would kind of coordinate we'd be like okay like mustafa Saul's playing we know that he's one of the most photogenic players on tour i'll post up in the back glass and if he does his typical like you know hands-on head celebration looking towards the crowd i'll get that but if he does something where he's like running towards the front wall you'll be positions where you can capture whatever he's doing up there yeah yeah um and i think one of the one of the coolest pictures I got from this U.S. Open was after he won the final. He was sprinting around the court and whenever he yeah. like jumped up, he like jumped up in the front wall in it's the front. Court. I was doing a
2: Spider-Man uh, it, Exactly.
3: It and like the, the show lights were going off. And so, you know, I have this frame that where it's like, you know, the house lights are off, except for like this blue light in the strobe. And he's basically
2: attached to the wall. Yeah, <laughs> and so some some of that particular moment it's that's got to be a little bit of good fortune as well surely yes total luck luck yeah. luck
3: has a lot to do with yeah. it and there I, there are so many times where you know, I'm in the right position. I have the camera pointed and like my focus just hits the wrong thing. And like, I hit like the back wall and the players in the foreground and they're out of focus. It's like, shit. Like I was so close. Missed it. Just miss it. Or squash is such a fast paced game where if you're moving um, really quickly to try to capture a movement, like a a dive or a lunge or something like that. And you just like, like the racket gets cut off barely in the frame or something like that. It's like, Oh, I was so close to having like the perfect shot and just missed it. You know, it's bill to your point of like, what, why are you taking, you know, the same pictures of the same people, you know, every picture is different, but also you're not getting the perfect picture every time you you press the button. And every time you fire the, the shutter, I think a lot of photographers will speak in terms of their success rate, like their percentage, their rough percentage of getting a usable image out of everything that they actually take. And it's probably a good photographer would be fortunate to have like a 10% success rate.
1: Right, right. But spell that out. So like you're covering the US Open. It's a multi-day event. Like how many pictures will you actually take? I think in terms of the times that I press the button yes. over over 3000, over 3000. In, in that in event?
2: It, one event. Yeah. Just one in event, that event.
1: 3000. And it is and you're doing burst, I, I imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On court burst. You have to and do it. So every burst, how many uh, sequences are you, or frames are you getting per? It,
3: it can be anywhere from five to twenty. Five to de- twenty de- per burst, depending, depending on the moment, you know, if it's if it's something where it's like a Saul celebrating, I'm just like firing off every yeah. second.
2: And you, every single one of those frames. Yes, every single one. <laughs> but it's, what is amazing arduous. from
1: that well. is like I mean how many just from one burst is even not separate whether it's good, right? Because yeah. that's a little bit of subjective like what is even usable because there are some that are yes. unusable. Totally. So from totally. one burst I got and I got
3: I get plenty. I get plenty that are unusable, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so what do you what
0: do, what do you do with them? You delete them or what? You delete like, them. Yeah, you delete yeah. them,
3: but you have to you have to spend the time of going through each frame, you know, clicking through each one and it's
1: like maybe I could use this one, maybe I won't throw it away. Right. It's, it's a for, it's a process. What is um, one of the the challenges for photography is is actually the lighting on each yes. court. And, and there are some courts that are better uh, lit because of the, the lighting type that they're using. But the I mean, gosh, the incandescent or the halogens are like terrible because yep. it's basically when you break it down in the frames, the light would be on and then off light on yes. and then off because you get the strobing effect.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I kind of learned about that through Steve Lyon and Steve shot on so many different glass quartz. And when you're taking these burst shots as quickly as they're happening, you can see that strobe where it's like every other shot has a different light because of that. It's not really you wouldn't pick up on it with your naked eye. But whenever you're looking at it afterwards, it makes a huge difference and can be the difference between a usable photograph and a not usable.
2: Will that change with the introduction of LED lighting? Because I heard that the lighting there is constant, no? Whereas opposed to it's, it's not lots of little brightness. Yes,
3: Yes, yes, that, that is an improvement. And I think I'm also definitely not a lighting expert, but the LED kind of movement is is moving in the right direction and does totally. help that.
1: To to your point, PJ, not all LED lighting is the same. Oh, is it and, not? And yeah. So there's there's different levels uh, you can do, and there's some that it's still like when you when you go to like um, let's say you're at Best Buy and you're kind of like, well, they're all TVs, right? But then when you kind of have an opportunity to look at them, they're different picture quality. That's the same kind of thing with LED, and they're all LED TVs, really. But the, that's the product array of LED lights.
2: I just so, so, said a. Uh, uh, question per- come in here chris From shout out
1: to pro sport led <laughs> exactly one of our
0: sponsors you guys sponsored <laughs> yeah, you have yeah. you have a question coming in live pj
2: yeah i've got questions just coming live from uh, from the psa they first of all they want to know what what is it that makes somebody photogenic and is there anything that you can do to improve it because here at psa we're trying to find a way of joey barrington looking better on camera <laughs> is there right. anything that can be done
3: listen you can't, well it's you, you all can't... done in
1: post it's all done in post-production first of all, all right,
3: okay. listen you can't change people's faces and all you can't right. change their okay. you can't change their personalities you, 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 you can only do so much all right
2: I'll, I'll pass that on but thank you yeah. <laughs> so,
0: talking about uh photography um and the venue so obviously everybody makes a huge deal about squash could be played at these most mag- the most magnificent venues in the world I think that's when a, a, like a tournaments play like at Grand Central Station I think the photographers and, and that's my issue with this is in what we talked about is so many photos being taken of the players on court they all end up looking the same where it's the venue that really sells and so um in, instead of having like the same fifty photographs of Paul Call diving and of Mohammed Al sherbagi pumping his fist and pointing to his head like he does—you could pretty much put that, get that photo anywhere, right? And and put the background in it and maybe you know digitally enhance it and put it in a fake background. But it's the venue itself, which is is the part of the game. And I don't think that the photographers, squash photographers, do enough with that. And I just want you to comment on that, like actually capturing the venue. Granted, a lot of the venues aren't spectacular, like you're in a gym, you're in like, you know, you're inside. So it's not all that compelling. But when you're at the TOC, when you're at the NetSuite, when you're at places like that, that seems to me that w- where uh, squash photographers could really, you know, enhance the sport as opposed to me seeing Mohamed al shiragi pointed his head again.
3: Yeah, I would agree in that that's some of the most important photography that the sport has and again i would point to steve line in terms of capturing some of the most iconic venue shots whether it's on top of a a roof in shanghai or the pyramids is probably the singular most iconic shot of the sport you know i don't think we can ever beat a squash court with the pyramids in the backdrop and probably the only thing probably the only thing that comes close to that is grand central um, but, you know, you could also argue, Bill, like if if you, you know, you have the same picture of Paul Cole diving, like, you know, you have the same picture of, you know, a court in, in Grand Central every year. I think this is a challenge
1: also for any sport. Like, I mean, yes. I'm thinking of baseball, basketball, like, well, how many pictures can you see of that person? Right. So it's it's the we, same. We,
3: we have that we're insiders. And so we yeah. might have we might have fatigue. But anytime somebody who doesn't know what squash is and you point to a picture of a squash court in Grand Central there, it's it's amazing. And, you know, it's jaw-dropping for them.
1: I, I will say having to kind of curate these going into sponsorship decks, you're looking for different elements of each one. You know, how well is this sponsor logo in the background, like in focus, out mm-hmm. of focus? If I'm picking that picture because we're, we're trying to pitch a bank, you know, you want it to align there. So, yeah, there's there's to capture any one event, there's multiple layers to this. The iconic photo of that venue and of that moment per year, it's the hardest to capture.
2: Yeah, I think Chris made the point earlier. A lot of the times when he's doing the US Open, for example, he's trying to bring an up-to-date what's happening. So you're not necessarily then going to be looking for, you know, the Island Spectrum Center or this is the Canary Wharf Classic. He's just trying to capture particular photos of matches that are taking place and calendar sort of the event, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, exactly. And I would also argue that, pictures of each individual match are very important to the players you yeah. know you know each match is a story and you know whether it's Gregor- gregory gaultier's like last appearance at grand central you can't really predict a lot of what might happen in a match, but there might be a really important story that comes out of it and you need to be in a position to be ready to capture it as soon as something does happen.
2: It's funny that you say that back in, obviously way back in the day when I was playing late eighties, early nineties, I actually used a couple of Steve line, uh, photographs, still shots to present to potential sponsors, to give them an indication of how the branding could possibly worn on my clothing. So yeah. it was a kind of a
3: source of it. Yeah, how that and, and I've had players come up to me and request that we use current pictures that have upd- updated sponsors, sponsors yeah. yeah, you know, like, you know, they switch from, you know, head to Dunlop or something like that. and They're like, hey, I need to make sure that we're not using like my old sponsor. Yeah. You know, that's that's important to players. Yeah. Yeah. so Chris yeah.
0: to wrap to wrap this up and it's you know because people think it's glamorous and that you're you know you're there at Grand Central Station on the it's on very the
3: it's very glamorous bill very very
0: <laughs> glamorous as, as we know so to, just just for and I know how how arduous this is so t- talk to me you you're at the Spectre Center you shoot the U.S. Open uh it's 11 o'clock at night 11 30 at night the last match ends everybody else goes out for a beer and goes home you then have to do something with those images they aren't just sitting in your camera overnight you're actually going and putting them out to, just give me a little sense of your typical night at one of these championships, be at the TOC, be at the NetSuite, or be at the US Open, or after the matches are all over, when your job really begins?
3: Yeah, it's a grind. It's a real grind, because not only am I processing images, but I'm also doing reporting I do the best I can to try to work on reports throughout the day, but you know, your biggest storyline of the day might happen at the last match that isn't over until 11 o'clock. And so then (laughs) you got to get something up online. It's a finding a balance of, okay, what do I need to get out on like social media to kind of reflect the results in a timely fashion, but also I need to get the website updated with a fresh report. I need to coordinate with the PSA on, you know, who's getting quotes from these players. What, what angle is the PSA using for their wrap up piece? Am I going to have a similar angle? Or, you know, maybe maybe I'll have like, you know, more of a US focus angle or something like that if it's like the US Open. So that's that's a, a couple hours for the US Open in particular. We send out emails to our, our database every night. And so I'm pressing send on those emails at like two in the morning. It's brutal. When you have like nine days of that, it can be exhausting. And with the TOC, you know, I also kind of work on these what they call the engineer, which is kind of a paper program that we update daily, and you know, need to get kind of match previews in that, update images on that, and kind of work on that through PowerPoint. And I have to hit like a midnight deadline to send it to the printers in order for it to be ready for the next day. Um, so it's it's a grind, you know. I think that's part of the job, and it's exciting to be a part of that. And I've gotten better and. and become more efficient at it, but it's uh, it's tough.
1: Well, I did want to take the opportunity since we've mentioned some other photographers. Here's uh, Steve Cubbins Oh, from totally. Watch from site who is just a workhorse. I mean, he yeah,
3: a I, I think he probably more than anybody else To see him sprinting from courts to courts, like it's amazing. Like back, you know, when we had the U.S. Open at Drexel, he'd be sprinting up and down the stairs, getting down to the basement Drexel courts, and then back up to the glass court, and he'd still get pictures of every single match. It's his efficiency and coverage is just unparalleled.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and he used to do the write-ups, right? You know, the write-ups would pop up on the squash. He's doing
3: doing the same thing, you know, like grinding on both the reports and the photography end.
0: I could picture you at age 80 doing that, Chris.
3: We will see. Although if you had told me that I'd spend nine years doing this, I probably would have you know, called <laughs> me crazy.
0: So, so tell me this: have you ever taken pictures at a rock show or at a concert besides no. like, on your, on your, on your phone?
3: No, I haven't. And, you know, I've, i thought about it, you know, I, I've thought about maybe that would be something cool to do. Um, but at the same time, every time, like it's such an outlet for me that, I'm there to appreciate the music and to kind of find peace and, you know, therapy and that communal experience as opposed to worrying about getting pictures, you know, I'd rather be there in the moment for the music than having no stress about, you know, dark lighting and pictures not coming out. Right. But don't
0: don't you think though, because you're such an aficionado that you'd be good at it? Like, just like PJ was talking about being like having experience as a squash player and knowing what picture to get and where to be and stuff like, your knowledge yeah. of music, I mean, you, you'd think that you would have such an advantage over, like, you know, Joe Smith from the New York Post who goes, takes a picture of a band playing at Madison Square Garden.
3: Yeah. Hey, I mean, maybe uh, maybe that's new
2: calling for me. <laughs> I just have one very last Good question. way to get free tickets. Any personal favorites that you've had printed up and framed up? Or any, no. Any real standout no. photos yeah. that you've kind of...
3: You know, pretty pretty much anything that you see on a US squash platform, that's kind of my best work and where my best work lives. And that's like the place for it. And I'm proud of that fact yep. and I'm proud of the work that I've done and, and put there on that platform. But you know, I'm I'm not here with pictures I've taken printed out behind me. I've got concert posters behind me.
2: Okay. <laughs> All right, just curious.
0: And, and no, York, I have,
3: but- I have had my pictures printed out by other people oh, right. and uh, other people have done that. That's cool. So that's, that's pretty cool. It's, you get credit. You get, uh, get it's credit. It's affirming. Credit. Chris uh, well, no, Chris. I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of happy that anybody would actually want to do that with one of my pictures. There you go. <laughs>
0: all right, Connor. That was probably the longest podcast we've ever done. So we'll see how that all goes. Chris, we appreciate it. That was, uh, the music talk was awesome. Just listening to you talk about music, the passion you have behind it is just, incredible and your passion for photography of squash is, is though not quite at the level of music is, <laughs> is, is still pretty pretty fascinating and, and and just uh it's it's nice to see somebody who enjoys what they do both professionally and socially uh as much as you do
3: thanks thanks so much for having me guys i'll be really impressed to see if anybody actually makes it all the way through this one given uh its length and i look forward to the fan follow-ups about their favorite Yolotango tango songs
0: <laughs> yes yes you got you got that pj yolo tango
2: It's just the band. It's just
0: Just, the band. band. All right, guys. Take care. Uh, Have a great day, and uh, we'll see you soon.
1: Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.